I'm just going with the flow. So, You're listening to Three Wise Truck Guys from Key Advisors. Good day. Welcome to the Three Wise Truck Guys with me, Keith Ely, and Mark Martinsik. Hi, y'all. And John Whitnell. But uh, Mark, John decided to go to the beach rather than join us today. Yeah, he's in Hawaii. Okay. I know. But he told me he hadn't had a vacation in two years. You've been working him too hard. He needed he needed it. So. Well, I hope he's enjoying it because uh, it's just you and me today. So, hey, Mark, I thought we'd just start off today just a uh, little bit of, of best and worst over the last month. What's, uh, what's the best thing that you've seen working with customers? Maybe it's looking at uh, – looking at any research that we're doing, maybe it's uh, something that's happening in the industry. What's, what's the best thing that you've seen uh, in, the, in the last month? I, you know, I think the best thing is not any one particular dealership, but uh, what's going on with technology, particularly in the service department, which obviously affects all of fixed operations, uh, the coming together of data, the ability that that we've gained in pulling together uh, financial data, key metrics for uh, service or parts department and tying it with process measurements, some of which come from decisive products, but uh, wherever we can get process measurements. And we're finding a lot of correlations that really really demonstrate or or reveal uh, how process affects your financial performance. And uh, I'm really tickled with the additional uh, data we're able to get today. From a worse standpoint, I continue to to, to uh, see issues just the opposite of dealers that don't buy into the OEM processes or haven't built their own processes and still manage their department's reactionary. And uh, that's all about leadership, which we've talked about in, in previous uh, podcasts. Um, but if you're if you're struggling with that, I would encourage you to listen to some of the previous podcasts or give us a call because uh, uh, engagement with your people and leadership drives more performance than anything else. I, you know, that's we're going we're to spend a lot of time today, or a decent amount of time today, talking about uh, some of these de- um, manufacturer vendor managed inventory programs, the three letter programs, or RIMPRO or DIA, um, MDI. LPA and so, so on. So we're going to talk about we parts. We are going to talk about parts today. I know it's your favorite subject. Oh, parts is easy. I know. Parts is I know. easy. You know, I you know. just set up the computer and anybody can sell a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to find out today. You know, it's the worst thing that I've seen in the last month was a customer we were at and we ask about, we, we always start with talking about inventory integrity, inventory accuracy. And we, uh, one of the things we look at is, is uh, uh, what we call a part number with a quantity not equal to zero. So it could be a positive or negative on hand with no bin location. And, you know, what, what happens when you can't find a part number, even though it says that that part number is on file and it's on hand? What's the counter person do? Well, it sounds to me like the back counter. Okay. <laughs> uh, from the standpoint, uh, they always have to order the part, right? Yeah, they do. I'm sure we'll talk about fill rate. I'm but, sure uh, we will. Yeah, but obviously it creates extra work. It it uh, busy work to find out what's going on, and I I know for a fact that if they follow the processes, 
and uh, do cycle counts and so forth, they could minimize that. From yeah, so this, this dealer had 400 plus uh, part numbers with a quantity not equal to zero, but with a bin location or no bin location attached. So you think about that, how you can find 400 plus parts. And that's a huge impact on customer satisfaction, on your technicians, everything. Yeah, even the efficiency of the parts personnel. Oh, yeah. They try to sort all that out where they could be selling other parts. Absolutely. Or or servicing the service department. Yeah, and that's most important for you, of course. So, you know, the best best thing, though, that we saw had to do with with a study that we did. And it was on uh, with one of the manufacturers. We didn't do it for the manufacturer, but we did it for a group of uh, of dealers, all from the same manufacturer, looking at looking at the um, impact of letting that vendor manage inventory actually work for the dealership. And what were the, what were the results? The more dollars that they let. Uh, the manufacturer managed. Now, I'm going to qualify this to say, and I we've got some special guests later on that I'll know talk more about this, but it doesn't mean that you just allow the 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 manufacturer, the vendor managed inventory to just run rampant, you know, do whatever they want. It's it's incumbent upon the dealership to practice good daily disciplines and weekly disciplines and so on to make sure that that, that program's working right. But what we wanted to see was, hey, the more dollars that you, that you expose as a percentage of your total inventory to the manufacturer to let them manage it, what happens? And so we studied about 20-plus locations. I think it's 21 rooftops. So it's not a scientifically valid study. But what we did find was pretty interesting. Um, overall, the results, Mark, were that the more dollars you let that uh, that vendor manage inventory from the manufacturer manage, the better the turns were, the better the fill rate, the better the uh, obsolescence percentage. The best performing dealer out of this group, they uh, they had Mark. They had. Um, 76% of the inventory being controlled by the manufacturer in terms of dollars. That was almost 26% higher than the average dealer in the group. Um, turns were one point turns better than the average. Their fill rate is about 10 points better than the, uh, than the average. Their gross return on inventory investment, which is gross profit dollars compared to the inventory, um, was 65% higher, 65 percentage points higher than the average. And it trended that there was things that were better, that had more dollars exposed to that, that vendor-managed inventory, the better their turns worked, the better their fill rate worked, and so on. So so what keeps dealers from doing it? Is it just not trust? I think, I think it's a trust thing, Mark. I think it's trust. I think it's knowledge. I think it's uh, um, we don't do it that way. We've never – and then I think what they find is when they allow it to – when they allow it to be exposed, then they just drop all semblance of inventory management. You know, they, they don't do any of this stuff that, that – that they need to do to manage the inventory. They have to communicate with the manufacturer. Hey, this isn't working. 
Tell me why this part's not on the shelf. Tell me why it's not reordering. Tell me why you put so many on the shelf. It's tough. I mean, it's not a, uh, you know, unlock the door and throw away the key type thing. Still have to have disciplines within the department. I'm sure you still have to account for lost sales and emergency purchases and so forth, right? Maybe even more than what you have to do um, when you're trying to manage it by yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think what what we're seeing is that these these manufacturer programs are very robust and they really work if you allow it to work. But the uh, boy, if you don't, if you say I'm going to allow you to work, but then you start building your own rules of what you allow the, the system to see. Um, if you start making manual changes and so on, boy, it just doesn't work at all. So you've got to, you've got to manage the inventory, but not over management from a standpoint of, of just thinking, you know, best. I think the really interesting thing along with that in, ter- in, in addition to the turns was their gross profit percentage was the highest of this group. It was almost two points higher. And aging was, the aging was almost 10%, 10 percentage points less. The over 12, no movement, was about 10 percentage points less than the average. So everything about this indicated that that dealership was really, really strong and, and that the program worked as well because they had the most dollars exposed. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, and it's critical both for the external customers and especially for the internal customers. I kid a lot about the parts department, but it's it's critical to the success of service and body shop as well. Uh, you know, if a service guy... It, if a service guy comes to the counter and needs uh, 10 parts and you got nine of them, that might as well be zero fill rate in most cases, yeah. okay? So it... it um, uh, he doesn't have a choice to go source that somewhere else if the parts department doesn't do that for him. And it's and you know the the old calculation of if I can if I'm making 72% gross profit in service and 28% gross profit, uh, which should be a minimum on repair orders. Okay, that means the dealership's making a dollar for every a dollar in gross profit for every dollar of labor produced in the service department. I don't know anywhere in the dealership where you can get that kind of return, but it goes to two departments, and uh, because you have two managers interested in their own department, sometimes it gets overlooked. Yep. Uh, but it, but it, it really is critical having the part when you need it. Yep. Um, so uh, that that's pretty that's pretty amazing. I'd like to hear more about that at some point. Yeah. Well, I think you know I think it's something for us to continue to do because I think that uh, you know your question was why don't people do it. I think, and we'll let a couple of our guests speak to it here later on. I think it's just a lack of knowledge how these things work and what they can do to control it. So, Well, and I do think you were right when you said it's not the way we've always done it. Uh, yeah. Certainly, no matter what department we're dealing with, that always is an obstacle. We don't do it that way here. It's different here um, and so forth. And sometimes it is, but in most cases... Uh, best practices are best practices. That's right. Hey, let's move on here. We've got some special guests with us today. We've kept them in the lobby for for a while, so let's uh, let's bring them in. We got some folks from our own um, KEA uh, team. We've got two folks from our business intelligence department. We've got Amber Kelzer. Amber, how are you today? Hey, Keith. I'm very well today. Thanks for letting me jump on the podcast. We're excited to have people smarter than us. How was everything in the green room? Did, were you, did you have enough snacks and drinks and so forth there? 
You know, the snacks are a little lacking today, to be honest. I was really expecting <laughs> some high-quality donuts. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, de we'll yeah. deal with that. So we've got from our BI department, from our BI department, as well, Patrick Kazinga. Pat, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Keith. How are you? Oh, well, great. And uh, hope you enjoyed the snacks in the green room as well. And uh, last but not least, we have Kent Ely. Kent's uh, our controller, but he also uh, does a lot of parts inventory integrity work. And uh, Kent's going to shed some light on uh, on this one dealership that we talked about as well. So, Kent, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. You guys heard the results of the study. And, uh, you know, the three of you, even you, Mark, have, have a lot of exposure to inventory management, um, both parts inventory, we've got tech inventory, Amber and Pat, uh, you come from a from a, where, a large warehouse background as well, which we'll be interested to hear some of your comments later on. But, you know, in hearing that, that discussion about the study, um, Amber, you got any takeaways from that discussion? Yeah, actually, I find it quite interesting. I've spent a lot of time recently at the end of the year helping parts departments reconcile their physical inventory uh, to accounting. And it really lines up with what you're seeing um, from an OE program perspective in that we want to let the DMS work for us. So there's a lot of systems in place to help automate the reconciliation of, say, parts returns, um, or even as you receive an order, reconciling that to accounting. And when we see the system set up correctly and used okay. for that reconciliation, we see a lot more accuracy. When we are dependent on people running a paper back and forth, we see a lot of opportunity. I know, I know one of the things that you've commented on is you've been doing this, this uh, uh, research on the reconciliation process for a couple of our customers was that, and I think the statement was something like, every time a human hand touches this and it's a manual, a manual entry or a manual step of the process, it breaks. Yes. Okay. Typically, um, what we see is that uh, people are overriding the system. Okay. And I think it's really important to understand why. Um, in my experience, it's usually because they don't have knowledge of how the system works okay. or because they feel the system has failed them in the past okay. and they don't have a good understanding. So they're overriding it. But anytime we override a process, it means we don't have a process. Gotcha. And there leaves a lot of opportunity um, for folks to improvise yeah. um, or to do what they believe is right. But oftentimes that doesn't line up with what accounting is expecting because they really do operate on a pretty standard process. Okay. Well, hey, let's uh, let's start talking about about the the dealership that scored best in this study. That dealership happens to be a a, a key customer. Kent, you're the one that went in and started to install their inventory integrity. Not started to you you actually have installed the inventory integrity processes for them. Could you just give us you know some background of what you observed when you went in to uh, when your first visit started to install the inventory integrity processes? Uh, you know, how that installation went, maybe a few of the challenges, but really, you know, give us some compare and contrast to, to you know, to what, what you're seeing now uh, when you look at this dealership as well. Well, I think first off, if we would have just looked at that uh, a dealership on paper six months ago and you looked at it and you would have said, you know, they're measuring their fill rate and it's showing 
somewhere 96 to 98 percent in terms of fill rate. And Mark would immediately, he would say one of two things. And the one that I can talk about on here is that he might say that's really good, but it's not real. Right. And it wasn't real. Um, so the first thing that that stuck out was just the way they were ordering parts. Um, okay. It's not really an inventory integrity issue, but um, it was, you know, everything was being ordered as a stock order. So we were artificially inflating our, our fill rate percentages. So can I, can I ask you a question on that? So are you saying that, 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 uh, um, I was not placing those orders on stock or what, what do you mean by that? They, they were being put on, on a stock order, but they weren't being tagged for a customer at the time of order. So, Oh, so you're saying that those parts weren't going to end up on the shelf in for replenishment. They were orders that were being shipped via stock, but they were for a customer. That's correct. We didn't have them. That's correct. Okay. Okay. So in terms of, of that, and then if we looked at, at their profitability, they, they are a profitable, um, they are a profitable dealership. And so profitable department. So things were looking good from those perspectives, but in terms of inventory integrity, um, knowing what was on the shelves at the time, um, understanding what costing on, on the parts was, um, knowing what bin they were actually in, um, none of that was was being worked. Um, Amber just spoke a minute ago about letting the system work for us in terms of the, the parts reconciliation. But um, you know, beyond that, there is some there is some work that we have to do to make make the system work correctly. It's it's the old garbage in, garbage out idea. Okay. Um, so what what I saw, if we go back again. Five months ago, for the first time I was I was on the ground, you talked about parts with um, a quantity not equal to zero, but with no bin location. That was not being actively monitored. Um, things like cost, if we if we had the quantity on hand but no cost assigned to it, um, that was not being actively monitored. Um, it's pretty tough to to sell a part. Number one, if we don't know how much it costs and, and what it should sell for. And number two, if we, if we can't put our hands on it because there's no bin location. Um, we also had items such as negative on hand and stock outs that um, um, were, were not being paid attention to. And then lost sales were not being recorded at that point in time. And cycle counts had not been installed at that point. So... While the department looked good on paper, um, it could function a whole lot better with some pretty simple daily disciplines added. So you're telling me that, that these disciplines, I mean, you talked about the no bins with the quantity on hand and the negative on hands and so on. I mean, is that something I got to do that, you know, that you recommend as a parts manager to manage, you know, once a month? Is it once a quarter? How do we manage those things? Obviously, the best way to manage it would be to to do it on a daily basis. Um, oh, I don't have time to do that. Well, at the at the beginning, you probably don't. Okay. Um, if you're sitting there with, um, you know, 
a stockout report of 763 part numbers on it. Um, what does that mean? It means that we've got parts that have qualified for stocking status, but for some reason they're they're either not on our shelf or not on order. So I thought that my vendor managed inventory just took care of all that and I didn't need to worry about that stuff. Well, it's supposed to. Okay. But sometimes things happen. Okay. And sometimes it's just a timing issue as, okay. as to when we're, when we're looking at, at that data that's made available to us. So where are they at now? I mean, as you look at, at where they're at now in terms of these daily disciplines you're talking about and so on. But let's start with cycle counts. Um, in September, cycle counts were not being performed. Um, in January, probably a third of the part numbers in their inventory were counted in that month. Wow. Was it, were they perfect counts? No. But have they, have they made some significant progress? Okay. You bet. You bet they have. Lost sales, um, they didn't see... They didn't see the reason and understand why recording lost sales was important. Um, well, they've gone from not recording lost sales to to averaging somewhere around 75 to 100 lost sales being okay. recorded each month. Again, it can get better, but but um, but they they're at least doing something now. Hey, Kent. Yes, Mark. I'd like to ask you a question about lost sales. Okay. Okay. When I'm when I'm talking to a back parts counter guy, when we feel like in the service department that that the fill rate is low, okay, and and uh, we start asking if they post lost sales, the answer I get is I didn't lose the sale because I ordered it, so I'm not posting it as a lost sale. Is that uh, the correct answer, or, or maybe you can explain that a little bit better? We view lost sales as not being able to supply the part at the time that it was requested. So your back parts counter guy that, uh, that you just talked about, um, I would disagree with, with what he's saying. So it's really a lost sale out of inventory then. We, we may have sold the part, but we didn't have it on inventory at request. Correct. So when I talked to that with him, then he says, well, then I'll have two demands for it because I sold ordered it and sold it and i had a lost sale so i'm doubling my demand does that affect anything we're trying to do i suppose it potentially could but um unless they're just selling tens upon hundreds of those i wouldn't worry about it yeah i'd, I'd, I'd say hallelujah you captured a lost sale you can't even capture one now you're worried about overstocking you know i'd rather be a little overstocked than uh, miss the sale i don't know how much it costs mark for a tech to not or, you know, to, to not have the part, but I guess it's pretty substantial. Yeah, ab absolutely. It's substantial and it affects both departments, obviously. Um, yeah. So if, if the tech has to, to uh, back the truck back out and go on another job because we don't have the part, that costs us all money based on the parts to labor ratio for both departments. So, they, they, you know, I, I think that uh, based on the, uh, my limited parts knowledge, okay, is that typically the uh, DMS systems, I'm not sure about the vendor managed inventory, will measure so many months that I sold one versus how many I sold in each month. Is that true? So in other words, if I had a lost sale and I ordered it and filled the demand and I'm showing two and it was within the same month, does that really change the phase in requirements? I'm working this through my head and no, that it's, it's going to look at one month, one month 
is that it's one month with a demand in it. Yeah, I think right. I think the only place it'll impact it is on depth when it becomes a stocking part. But you know what? So so you've gone from averaging 0.002 sales a month to 0.003 sales a month. You know, you're you're it's it's insignificant unless, like Kent said, you're doing tens of thousands of these of these one part number a month you know or day so the, the last thing i was going to say on the lost sales though is you know whether somebody adopts our definition of a lost sale or they're using their own definition um is just to be consistent with it you know if if the back counter guy isn't recording if if he's recording one and not the second one you know be just be consistent yeah that's all you can ask so Kent, overall, when you look at the at the dealership now, we, you know, we looked at those numbers. Those numbers were from December. They were a December thirty one number. Um, you've been engaged there, give or take, since September one. Um, pretty significant Im- improvement. Uh, significant improvements in in the daily disciplines. Um, in and you know, it's it's pretty easy to make big strides when when a lot of those things weren't being done on a daily basis. Um, the interesting part to me is we go back to September and we were at, um, or before September, we were in that 95 to 96% fill rate. Which was not real. Um, which was not real. And, you know, I look at the same numbers for, um, December and January and um, we're in the 84 to 86% range. Um, And, you know, and we knew it was going to drop off. Just because of the math calculation. Just because of the math calculation, but we're starting to see real numbers and yeah, 84 to 86% is a little low, but it's a heck of a lot better than, than they were probably doing before yeah. with I, I, if we had a real calculation that we could have performed at that and they're time. still the best out of that group of dealers that we looked at even with the 84 yeah. 85 86 percent i know when we looked at at a, a dealer we were at two weeks ago the one with the 400 plus quantity on hand you know their fill rate their real fill rate is is less than probably 65 percent again they had some some data issues, but, uh, but it's, you know, it's significantly below that 85%. So, you know, I think, I think one of the things that, uh, as we talk about vendor managed inventory and its impact is that, and we've, we've spoken to a little bit, but, you know, vendor managed inventory does probably quote no best because it, it, it gets a bigger view of the, of the, of what's happening in the, not just for that dealership, but market area and the region and so on. And it's probably understands what's behind the, the, the channels in terms of PDC where parts are coming from and so on. And, and so vendor managed inventory gives a full exposure to that pipeline, but it does not mean that, that we turn everything, you know, on to uh, automatic pilot without, without doing these, these daily activities that can't spoke to. Um, that's, that's what makes this thing work properly. You know, if we have a wrong count on hand um, versus what the system says, it's going to either over order or under order. 
because of the way the math works. And uh, if it doesn't know demand, it won't put the right part into stock and so on. So, you know, we found this with another customer of ours just in the last couple of weeks. What they thought was happening in their uh, in their parts department was end up not being true. They they thought that a lot of their part numbers were being exposed to vendor managed inventory uh, where they where they really weren't, and they were just mainly quote mainly set up in the DMS but not exposed. And so it was causing either the part number to not reorder, or if it was if it was reordered because it was exposed, but under a with some manual um, blocks and so on in it, they weren't getting the right quantities on hand. You know, there are errors inside that database, uh, the manufacturer's database, and then there were practices that the the dealership personnel were doing to either over-record or not record any demand history. They were doing transfers with with demand history being recorded, and then other places record demand history. So it was very manual. Going back to what Amber said, it was very manual, a lot of inventory inaccuracy. The fill rate when we started on that was about 50%. We looked at it today. Now they've got a couple of their stores that are climbing uh, towards the 80% mark and uh, um, and going above that. They've they've got their – it's going to be really exciting to see what happens as they've cleaned up their exposure parts to vendor-managed inventory, and they're getting their, their daily items done. You know, we've got another customer very similar to to, uh, to the one we just talked about that about a year ago we started working on some back counter, specific back counter and um, overall inventory management practices. Um, and they've gone on this now long enough that they're, they're able to see what happens when the inventory is accurate, the demand ac- uh, information is accurate, they're keeping these daily disciplines in line that can't talk to. And then also, I know you, you uh, spend a lot of time building stocking parameters as well. We'll talk about that there later on, but stocking parameters that mimic the, the vendor-managed inventory so you can determine what vendor-managed inventory items are missing or excess on the shelf. And they're now at, if you look at their at their overall, and they're a large group, but if you look overall at their uh, at their fill rate, first time fill rate by piece, that number is consistently ninety percent and above for almost all their stores. And their obso, so months no sales in this case over thirteen because that's what their manufacturer will take will take the parts back, is below two percent. Um, you know, and it's all driven by this daily track template and tool that we put in place. Can't you work with that a ton? I think there's, it's interesting that, you know, the, the disciplines that, that we see these really high performing dealers put into place and, uh, they don't overthink the management of it in terms of what to expose to, to vendor managed inventory and so on, but they work the disciplines inside the, the inventory Boy, it, it sure appears to have great results, and their gross profits. At the end of the day, they're selling more parts, and their gross is going up. Mark, I'm sure their uh, their efficiencies and productivities are going up for their techs as well. Absolutely, uh, you know, even even without all the processes in the service department, obviously, if we have the parts, if we have all ten parts in my example from previously in stock, we can go to work, and there's less waste, less lost time, which means we produce more hours, which means we sell more parts and yeah. keep customers happy too. Yep. Hey, Mark, let's, uh, let's turn our attention now to, uh, to spring Patrick into this discussion. Uh, you know, Mark, you're, you've been exposed to pulse. We've, it's a, uh, product that we put out into the market just the last month or so. And that pulse data is really, I guess I'd call it, uh, 
uh, operationally. It's not financial data. It relates to the financial performance, but it really is helping. It's mimicking in some cases you know, how, how your team uh, installs processes, and it's the key measures that come out of those out of that uh, out of that process installation. But now it's real time data that they're seeing uh, to manage to. And I think that's that's uh, very, very important, the fact that it's real-time data. I think it updates three or four times a day. So when I'm looking for uh, exceptions and outliers and so forth, uh, the quicker I can react to it, not only might it make us more money, but it also uh, helps us in engaging and teaching our staff uh, to do it right if we can catch it up front. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an amazing product, the ability to drill down in one place instead of looking at 20 different reports from your DMS system or other technology or, or reports that you're calculating manually. Uh, it's all in one place and the drill down is really amazing. And, and uh, I watch them set up alerts. So if something falls outside a set of parameters, they're notified immediately. Uh, it's really having a big impact for those few dealers to have it so far. Yeah, I, I think what I find fascinating about it too is that, um, you know, we've been having some uh, discussions with decisive and some other folks about integrating their data and their databases into pulse and so now we've got dms data possibly decisive data other databases coming in there for for one dashboard if you will to, to look at rather than going multiple places i think that's exciting yeah that that's what i was alluding to at the beginning of this uh, podcast that the the ability to marry data uh, and look at the process data and the effects of the correlations it has with the uh, key metrics of the financial data for a dealership is just uh, stuff that we used to dream about, Keith. I know. Okay. I know. That's available today. So. Yeah. Well, Pat, I know that you've been, you're, you and Amber are building Pulse, and uh, one of the big things is is, is integrating or or, or uh, getting that DMS transaction data um, into, into Pulse. And I think what you said over time as you've been doing this and building the the, the dashboards and the, the behind the scenes stuff in the dashboards is that if the DMS isn't being used right, not that the pulse data isn't right, the calculations are right, but probably the pulse data isn't right in terms of being real. Um, and and uh, I think you've talked a lot, you and I've talked quite a bit about that on the, uh, on the parts inventory side of it, and that if pulse data, if the pulse data is not coming across uh, or the, the DMS data is not coming in the pulse with the right data, meaning they're not using the DMS right, then uh, that pulse that pulse dashboard is probably not as effective as as it could be for for the uh, for the dealer and for their, their folks. You, you got any any thoughts you want to share with us about that? Because I, I think this is a fascinating discussion. Yeah, I think um, a lot of what I've seen. Um, kind of echoes what Kent was talking about. One of the biggest things that I've seen looking across several different stores is just the inconsistency of how um, back counter sales are even recorded. So just as an example, um, one of the stores that I looked at over about a two-week period um, found that several of the um, back counter sales weren't getting recorded as a customer sale. So they were getting rolled into the stock just for this one store over two weeks. I'm trying to remember, it was somewhere between 25 um, to 30% drop in their daily fill rate over that time frame. 
when they actually recorded it correctly. Um, the other thing that the, the other big inconsistency um, from using the system that I'm finding a lot is in how uh, updated the information is when recording sales, invoicing, um, a lot of variations. And this isn't just from store to store. One of the biggest inconsistencies I can find is the variation from one um, sale or one parts counter to person to another parts counter person. So when I look at it, I can find two records that are almost identical. Um, how they record the sale, what it's recorded as, the type of invoice sale that it's made, um, really just leads to a difficult time to compare even within um, that one store, let alone trying to go from one store in a dealership group to another. So Pat, is there, is there a, and we won't get into what this might be if there is one, but is there a quote best practice or a, you know, best way to do this inside the DMS? And, and is it, you know, what you're seeing more of a utilization and a training issue and maybe a understanding how the DMS works and they've built shortcuts or they built workarounds in the past and they've just always stuck. And so now we're not getting the right, not just the right data, but you talked about the ordering process on the back counter, you know, that, that if it's not set up as the right type of order or even set up as an order, you don't have anything to receive, to receive against. So now you don't, you, you know, you're, you're, uh, not only is your calculation wrong, your process and your visibility on that order are, they go away. Yeah. So I just going back into some of my background, I think probably the biggest thing is a standard operating procedure and a training. Is it set up so that everyone is doing it exactly the same? And then I think the next part is, has everyone been trained to do it, um, do it correctly? Okay. The, the variation, I, I would like to believe in the intent of the person. I don't think there's a, a malintent in what they're trying to sure. do. But if I haven't been taught or I don't know what I'm supposed to do, that I think leads to a lot of variation in whether it's how they're using the DMS, how they're recording the sales. Um, you know, can't talk to it. I was actually out a couple of weeks ago and the question that came up about is a part at the lot at the back counter considered a lost sale? Um, the service manager was asking about it. Um, the parts manager, was blatant. He goes, we don't record it as a lost sale. Well, that's an inconsistency. Now, if one back counter person does that, the other one doesn't, you're creating a lot of variation within that. Um, it was an it was a perfect example as Kent was talking about it. I, I lived through that question real time and just sat back and kind of listened to how they talked through it. And it was exactly what he said. That was a, um, because we did not lose the sale, we just had to order it. It's not a lost sale. But if I have one person doing it that way and another person records it as a lost sale, um, is that a standard procedure and someone's not doing it because they haven't been trained? And that's something that you can address through both getting the procedures in place and then making sure everyone's trained on it and then checking up to make sure it's getting done correctly. I think I think that it's, you know, it's we always get the question about, why do I need to record a lost sale or why do I need to do these, these, these bin checks or whatever it is? 
you know, it's it's about getting the right part on the right shelf at the right time and the right quantity at the right price. And uh, um, gosh, if we're not if we're not measuring that demand and not just the demand, but understanding the reason behind that, you know, why was the part not on the shelf? Why did we have to record a lost sale? Um, you know, should it have been on the shelf? I I, I find these variations uh, really interesting and and. Um, I, I, I guess I'd argue that there is a kind of what you're arguing, Pat, there is a best way to do this. And, and if you don't, it, it impacts your performance. It's not just a, um, gosh, we wish we'd record lost sales, right. And not, not understand the impact of it, but, uh, let's record the lost sales and follow through the process. And, uh, maybe we can get the right parts on the shelf. So, Pat, any, any other thoughts that you've had on, you know, as you've observed and worked in these transactions, you know, mapping them out of the DMS into Pulse and some of the Pulse results that you're getting? I know you've got some customers that are really, you're getting what you consider to be pretty accurate data. The others, nah, maybe, it's again, it's not that it's inaccurate data. It's more of a garbage in, garbage out type thing. Yeah, I think the, the biggest piece that I've seen just looking through um, invoicing of, of parts has been um, just fields even within any kind of an invoice that are left blank. Uh, the more accurate the data is input, if there's a field, if it needs to be inputted or not inputted, um, I think erring in the side of at some point this may be information that we need to know and not just skipping over it because to be able to really grab a good data set, you want to be able to slice and dice anything you pull as many different ways as possible. And if you go back and there's fields that are not there, but there could have been input, it might take a little bit of training to get that caught up. But I think if the, the more data that's data points that are created, the more accurate you can make that information. So not just even with polls, just as you're um, doing any kind of analysis uh, within that DMS system. I'd like to be able to pull as many points as I can, but again, it's the from invoice to invoices, I've scanned through them, um, definitely see some people, and it usually goes by uh, the parts counter person of how much information is generally consistent um, from person. And then when you compare from person to person, what fields maybe have been omitted or left off. Okay. Imagine that, Mark, people not using the DMS to its full, fullest capability. Yeah, uh, it, it, it happens in every department, and, and it probably is most critical. Never in service, though. Never in no, service. No, it happens very often in service as well, okay? But probably really is most critical in parts uh, because there's so many more entries and parts for for all the dollars and all the part numbers that are that are in stock and so forth so yeah uh. i would jump in here and um and, and maybe i'm just reading what you just heard from pat but um on the topic of pulse and how the data is put into the dms um and on the topic of garbage in garbage out we were concerned when our um platform was being beta tested that if folks weren't using the available fields inside the DMS, would the output that Pulse can give you be valuable? Right. Would it be value added to that dealer? But what we found is even with dealers that aren't using their DMS to its fullest potential, the value is there because Pulse can show you where you're off. Uh, it can show you what routines you're lacking. And so not only do you see a metric and you know it's incorrect, 
but you're able to track it down to the transactional level to understand what routines you need to change inside your parts department to get better data. So it's just not operational. It can help you identify process and uh, performance issues then. So. Absolutely. And that's almost made it more valuable to those dealers. You know what, Amber, thanks for, thanks for chiming in. Cause you know, they, I, I know that you've done a, a lot of transaction research here in the last couple of months um, between this GL to physical reconciliation, the variances between two values. I know Pat, Pat gave us, uh, I think Pat, you did a, um, a very simple, I quote, I say quote simple, not really, but um, just, analysis of of different inventories within the same dealership group with the same part number trying to see if there's costing variances and i think we found in this dealership group there was 591 part numbers that that had a different cost at least between two locations if not more and so amber you want to talk a little bit about what you're finding you know the, the background of, of what you're finding on this research because i this is something we get lots and lots of questions about it's a problem point and we keep digging deeper and deeper into it and i think that uh, that this i think some of the things you guys are finding is is really really interesting and it's really important because again it points to a process issue <clears throat> it certainly it certainly is a financial statement issue if we have to write up or write down inventories and it could be uh you know whether you keep your job or not issue as well yeah i think when it comes to the part cost think of it like a tracking beacon on the accounting side if you have a part number with a specific cost the way accounting is going to account for that parts transaction is by that cost and we've seen issues where um, if two different rooftops inside the same dealer group have a part at a different cost let's say they transfer that part um, between themselves and they send it from store A to store B, it exits store A's inventory at the cost of that rooftop. And then it enters the accounting of the next rooftop at the same price. But if the cost is set up differently in the system at that rooftop, it enters the physical at a different price. And it immediately creates discrepancies between your physical and your accounting. Um, so you can see how that tracking beacon needs to be consistent yeah. or even available to you at all times. Yeah. A missing cost can create very similar issues inside one rooftop. What, what are some of the other, other observations you've seen as you guys have been doing this research? Um, I think it's truly the number one thing I've noticed is whether or not folks understand their process. Okay. So, and we've mentioned it throughout the podcast, um, but anytime we circumvent the system and we do it manually, that was triggered at some point by someone usually feeling like the system wasn't working for them. Okay. And Kent mentioned the daily routines um, that can help you ensure the system is working for you, that you're reconciling it, that you're trusting it, but you're verifying it throughout each day. And what we've seen in any of the major errors that we've found is it's usually a manual entry. It's usually done by a person because they didn't understand the process. And when we go try to audit it and better understand why it happened, um, it can be really tough to find someone that can walk us through why it was done that way or what the process was. Well, finding just, so, just finding the data if, if they're manually doing it is pretty tough, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Audit trailing manual entries is very, very difficult. And always once we find them, it's through what I call tribal knowledge. Okay. We found a parts guy 
on the, you know, on the ground, they can speak to what happened because the system can't tell us. And usually with those errors, once we solve them, we always implement a standard process following it to ensure that we can audit trail it next time or prevent it in the future. Mark, it's, I mean, it sounds like a whip reconciliation. Yeah. And I I keep, uh, as Amber was talking there and Patrick was talking, I I, I keep, you know, what, what people don't realize is that if you're overriding something that could be done in the system electronically, if you take time to find these errors that they're talking about and so forth, that's all busy work. That's all just waste of, of people's time that they could be interfacing with customers or selling something or producing something, okay, that makes us money and makes the next cup customer happier, okay? It's just all this round and round and round busy work that we create by not having or not following or not having the accountability or discipline for best practices processes, okay? Uh, and and uh, again, uh, Pulse is amazing because it helps us and it'll help us more in the future tie process to the to the key metrics to drive the financials and it's almost live data and you can deal with it daily uh, which not only enhances your financials but it's a terrific opportunity to coach your people to have less of those outliers less of those workarounds and become more efficient yeah. you know i think i think the uh, other thing that and and uh Patrick and Amber and Ken, I'm going to let you speak to this because you guys deal with this a lot. Uh, and we've talked about vendor managed inventory, but when we talk to people about vendor managed inventory, and then we talk about these stocking parameters, phase in, phase out, um, uh, high and low day supply and so on, uh, economic order quantity, whatever it is, we get the response. Well, it doesn't matter because vendor managed inventory, whatever my three letter acronym is um it doesn't look at that stuff anyway so why do i need to do it you guys got any thoughts on that because we get a lot of pushback on that well so the one that patrick and i learned about last week um was and it had to do with uh parts that were deleting out of the system and um i was reviewing a customer's um, phase-out criteria. Actually, all of their stocking criteria, but uh, I saw some things in the phase-out that, to me, really didn't make any sense from where we're normally at. And it was, um, I mean, it was way off from what we, we would prescribe. And so in talking with them, um, we learned that it... Uh, this setting was brought about because the um, the manufacturer was was penalizing them if a part that they had supplied that the manufacturer had uh, stocked to them in the last twelve months um, had been deleted from the system, and so the customer had uh, had thought through this on on what they needed to do what they thought they needed to do um, to mimic the system and um, to keep, to make sure that that, those part numbers, even though they weren't selling, um, would, would remain in the system. 
So they and, so they may uh, not have had a port on the shelf, but the port number needed to stay in the system. Yes. Okay. So we didn't we didn't want it to phase out, and we didn't want we for darn sure didn't want it to delete out of the system in that twelve month period. Okay. Um, and so it's it's things like that that yes the the manufacturers not looking doesn't pay any attention to those stocking parameters. No, the manufacturer really is paying attention to those stocking parameters, and and they're gonna they're gonna um, penalize you one way or the other. So I think you know I think that and you guys talked about the lost sale piece and this fill rate thing too. Kent, you talked about stockouts. Isn't isn't part of these building these parameters too to uh, you know again to mimic what we we would use the term mimic what's happening with vendor managed inventory. So the the delivery time and the all that to, to, to build day supply isn't part of that process to, to know, I guess, to provide a sanity check against the vendor managed inventory to say, so certainly what you were talking about to make sure that it doesn't hurt the, the dealer, but also to provide a sanity check to say, Hey, is this, is this manufactured product really working the way it should be working? It gives me a, a sanity check against it. By all means, um, we, we don't want, while we want fill rate to, to be high, we don't necessarily want to, to uh, sacrifice, um, you know, good inventory management in, in terms of stocking levels um, against that. And the manufacturers, sometimes it, it feels as though they're just dumping inventories on us to, uh, to fill their quotas. And um, maybe I'm getting it, going to get myself in trouble for saying <laughs> that. Um, but, you know, if, if it doesn't make any sense for us to, to stock that, um, if, if we want to be a healthy department, a healthy dealership, we've, we've got to understand what those levels should be. Okay. And I guess in reverse, if, if we're not getting those stock outs that you talked to earlier, if we're not getting the right part on the shelf, then communicating that back as well. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, Hey, um, you know, we're, we're, we're running close on time here, but I, I, I think the last piece of this that I would love to, uh, to get some just knowledge and wisdom on and can't, Certainly, you can chime in if you like. Uh, but Pat and Amber, you know, they come from a they come from a a different industry in 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 total than than the dealership industry before they came to work for Key Advisors. Um, but you you guys were in a large warehouse environment. You guys were were moving product in and out of a warehouse on a very consistent basis, probably at rates much, much higher volume and a higher rate than, than, than our customers move it. Could you guys just talk about, you know, I guess, first of all, some of the observations and principles that, that you guys believe carry over into this, into this industry from your, from your, um, your background where you came from and maybe some things that we might learn from uh, things that you guys, knowledge and wisdom that you guys have accumulated in the past that, uh, as you look at the dealership industry, may not be in place today. Um, absolutely. Um, so you're right. Imagine 1.4 million square feet 
a building three stories high, full of rackings and pallets, um, four, five, six stacked high. I think that one thing that holds true is whether you're moving heavy truck parts or whether you're moving retail product. Knowing where your product is at, how much of it you have, and how quickly you can access it and get it to your customer um, is the same in any environment. Inventory management doesn't shift because of the type of product that you're carrying. And understanding what your standard process is, making sure your team is educated on it, that you're teaching daily routines. I really think that that carries over, <coughs> as does auditing that process and following up when your team's doing a great job. We're stewards of the inventory that's given to us, and the accuracy and the fill rate to our customer is dependent on us following those daily routines. And just like within parts, finding product tucked into corners and on the floor meant it wasn't where it should be so we could get it to customers. So you're saying there's really no difference at all? There's a larger scale, which meant that the issues that we found were a lot higher. Instead of losing $100,000, we were losing $7 million. Wow. But by changing the same routines, we were able to find it. It was only systematic. $7 million didn't walk out the door. Okay. But we were able to find it, track it, and increase our fill rate to our customers. Interesting. Yeah, and I would echo exactly what Amber was saying there. There's no difference in between an inventory and inventory. Um, That. The biggest carryover I see is errors, I believe, are occurring at any of the dealerships or the same errors that I saw um, in my previous career. Most of the time it's due to a training or not having a standard procedure in place, which allows people to um, circumvent the system, maybe not even intentional. Um, But with that system in place, um, you can audit it, you can check it, but most importantly, you can train. So as there's turnover within a dealership, the next person up, um, is there a standard way to train them? And that's going to come from your procedures. Here's how we do this. You're able to train them. You eliminate a lot of the variance in there. And that's one of the biggest things that um, through my previous career, I saw an ebb and flow of the amount of training that was performed um, when it was very high, um, very intense training. We were really accurate. Um, then for a while, it became a little bit as, as Amber and I came from the same place previously. She talks about tribal knowledge. When we went to tribal knowledge, I'm going to get trained because this guy's just going to kind of tell me when I have a question how to do it. All that time in between those questions just leads to a ton of variance in there. Um, but overall, the, the principles are always the same. Um, I need to have the right product on the shelf. I need to know how many is there. And I need to know how quickly I can get the next order in um, should I ever run out. So principles, um, the same, just scales. the only difference really in between them. Well, hey, um, thanks a lot for for the three of you joining us today. Uh, I I think this is an interesting discussion. I think that, uh, you know, we started off with this study that we did, and and, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty, there's 
pretty significant differences between those that really allowed the vendor managed inventory to work and that really practiced um, strong inventory management practices. The performance of that department, gross, gross percentage, turns, fill rate, obso, and et cetera, versus those that didn't. You know, we've, we've talked about this and, and uh, with, with you guys. Appreciate the input. Mark, you got any questions for uh, Amber, Patrick, or Kent before we let them leave the building? No, just keep doing a good job. Uh, the data you're providing, it's really helping us make a difference in dealerships and, uh, and drive the process and show the importance of the, of the process and the efficiencies and the accountability. So uh, uh, we, we, we've really put together a pretty good team, haven't we, Keith? I think we have, Mark. Amber, Patrick, Kent, any, uh, any closing comments for our listeners? Thank you for letting us uh, share what knowledge that we have. Um, we are pretty fortunate to get to be, or I'm pretty fortunate to get to be part of a pretty great team. Thanks for letting us in the room, Keith and Mark. Just, just one time. Yeah, thanks, thanks for joining one, us. So one last thing before you sign off, there, Keith. Remember, service is still harder to manage in parts. <laughs> well, thanks. Hey, Kent, Amber, and Pat. Thanks again for joining us. Well, they've left the building, Mark. So, uh, Mark, what'd you think of that discussion? Uh, it, you know, I always learn from these uh, podcasts. Okay, uh, and uh, uh, you know, I, hopefully, the dealers are listening and paying attention because uh, even small improvements can have a huge impact. And and parts drive so many things in the dealership. Uh, it may or may not already be your most uh, profitable department. Okay, but. What's the opportunity still out there if you if you did a better job? That's yeah, that's right. So that's right. Well, um, Mark, if if anybody listening has any questions about what we've talked about or they want more info about anything, who should they contact here? Well, they can contact Heidi, Heidi at keyadvisors.com or any one of us. Okay, uh, info at keyadvisors.com. Uh, Mark at keyadvisors.com, Keith at keyadvisors.com. I think you got the idea. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just reach out to us. We're always looking for ideas to put into these podcasts. And, and uh, or if, uh, if the listeners want it, to dig deeper on any one of the topics we've covered. So please reach out. Yeah. So with that, Mark, thanks for joining us, joining me. And, uh, we wish John would have been with us, but I guess we're jealous of him being on the beach right now. So, Very jealous, so, yes. Yeah, very jealous. So, yeah. well, With that being said, we're out. Thanks for listening to Three Wise Truck Guys, the podcast from Key Advisors. We'd love to hear from you. Send us feedback, comments, and questions to info at keyadvisors.com.